God spoke to Moses. He appeared to him in a burning bush. When he spoke to Noah and Ezekiel and Samuel and David, he whispered to them on a mountaintop. For me, it was a little different. Welcome to episode 23 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. And you just heard a teaser for my play, The Commandment, which will premiere this July at the Hamilton Fringe Festival in Hamilton, Ontario. If you're in the area, I hope you'll come by and see my show or any of the other great shows that you can find at the Fringe. You can buy tickets online now at hamiltonfringe.ca and you can find out more about my play at thecommandment.ca. On Stageworthy, I interview people who make theater, actors, directors, playwrights, and more, and talk to them about why they chose the theater to their work process and anything in between. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at stageworthypodcast.com. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. My guest today is Amy Blackmore, the executive and artistic director of Montreal's Mainline Theatre and the St. Amboise Montreal Fringe Festival, as well as the artistic director of the Bouge DC. Amy directs and choreographs Mainline's annual production of the Rocky Horror Show and has performed her own works at Fringe, Mainline, and other locations around Montreal. Thank you so much for for coming on. I've, I've actually wanted to to talk to you for a little while, um, and not just because of the the Fringe Festival connection and your connection to Mainline Theater, um, but also because I it, you you come not I, I correct me if I'm wrong, but you come more from a dance background than a theater background. I do, yeah. So. Let's let's talk about that for a little bit because I, I I would love to talk about the uh, the journey from from dance to theater. Um, were you always uh, a dancer? Well, it, it's sort of an interesting story about how I got involved in dance, and then also how that relates to the Montreal Fringe. Um, when I was a child, my mother was actually a caretaker at a church, <laughs> and uh, at the church there were dance classes. And so as an infant, I would go with her to work and she would just sort of leave me in the little like childcare bas- like basket uh, under the sound system. And then kind of, I kind of grew up always sitting under the sound system and watching dancers <laughs> uh, whenever I went with her to work. And when I was around three or four, the dance studio said, you know, you should probably think about putting Amy in classes. And I, you know, it's, it was amazing. It was like a, a recreational dance school uh, um, or that those kinds of classes in ballet and Highland. And I started competing and I've spent a good part of my life with that dance school. It's actually the Cameron School of Dance in Greenfield mm-hmm. Park. And I became a dance teacher, uh, a coach for the competitive team. And I actually had to retire from 
doing that a couple of years ago when I uh, when I got my job running the Montreal Fringe, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. But then that kind of brought me to a path of being excited about performing and being in front of uh, an audience even and facilitating because I also went to that church and uh, it was a beautiful Park United church. Um, and, you know, it was a very open kind of church, very all-inclusive. And we did a lot of performing there and a lot of theater and shows, uh, like, you know, spaghetti supper variety shows, like that, that, that genre, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, as I, I discovered The Fringe when I was a teenager, but if you skip ahead, I actually ended up doing my uh, BFA in dance at Concordia University in contemporary dance to uh, specialize in choreography, actually. So it's kind of an interesting thing how it all fits together. I mean, at, at the Montreal Fringe, you know, we're really known as being a multidisciplinary kind of festival. Yes. Uh, whereas, uh, I mean, every every fringe, the great thing about it is every fringe has its own local flavor. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's like we all have those four guiding principles, but you know how we how we work with them and the things that really make us us definitely change from city to city. And in Montreal, you know, choreographers are really a dime a dozen over here, and uh, there's a lot of different little scenes that come out. And because our community is kind of small. Uh, even though it is Montreal, uh, the artistic community is pretty tight over here yeah. and live in kind of in, in the neighborhood that the, plat- uh, the Plateau Mont-Royal, where the fringe takes place. So I think that's why we see so many different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, did you always intend, just to, just to keep on the dance topic just for a second, Ooh. did you intend that that was going to be your career path, that you would be a dancer? That's a good question. I mean, I I actually read in a notebook recently, uh, like a little scrapbook that my mother had kept from many years ago. And it said that when I was four, I wanted to be a ballerina. When I was five, I wanted to be a ballerina. But when I was six, I wanted to be a police officer. So I think maybe <laughs> there were years where yes and years where no. Uh, I always wanted to be involved in dance. I would say dance is my first passion. Uh, and Fringe did become the second passion, but I'm still in love with dance. You know, in my role as uh, executive and artistic director of Mainline Theater, we've really brought a lot of dance into what we do. Mm-hmm. There's so Because there's so much crossover and because I'm passionate about it, like we do the Bouge DC Dance Festival, and our sort of one of our major productions of the year is – uh, Richard O'Brien's The Rocky Horror Show, which is a musical that I direct, but I also get to choreograph a good chunk of it, which is really great. <laughs> so you were saying that you discovered The Fringe, I think you said at 17, was it about, was it a, in your teenage yep. years? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did you discover Fringe? Uh, it's a little twofold. I had a, a best friend at the time, Nancy. Her parents were actually both volunteer venue managers for the festival and they wanted to keep us out of trouble. <laughs> so they said, you know, you guys should come and discover the fringe. I'm looking back. I'm like, you can get into a lot of trouble at a fringe. But anyways, <laughs> especially the Montreal fringe. But uh, we'll leave mm-hmm. that aside for now. But the real discovery moment or the real, I guess, aha moment for me was when I was walking with my friend up St. Laurent Boulevard. Um, and it was around sunset. It was a really hot day. The street sale was going on. And I could see 
or I could hear from the distance, there was this like rock music playing and it sounded really cool. And we're like getting closer. We want to figure it out, see what it is. And it's the fringe park that's on the corner of Rachel and Celeron. And we're like, Oh, let's go check it out. So we walk over, we get closer. The music's louder and louder. We walk in the tent and it is jam packed full of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone having a good time, people dancing, people talking. There's artists, people are like dressed up in costume. There's people like flyering. It kind of felt like carnival y to a certain extent. Um, and a real kind of sensory overload uh, at the same time. And we, so we go in, and I think after being there for a couple minutes, we both had tons and tons of people just come up to talk to us. Mm. How are you? Oh, is this your first Fringe? Welcome to the Fringe. Well, come see my show. Oh, no, come see my show. What do you think about a show? Do you like theater? Let's talk about dance. And it just became, we were just like included immediately. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a 17-year-old girl, you know, uh, or teenager at the time, that really meant a lot to me to have people ask like what they thought I had to say about something. And then before we knew it, we were both at the info booth that night talking to, cause they, it was like, I think the volunteer coordinator was walking through the tent and he was like, okay, wait, uh, you, you're a fringe volunteer, right? And I was like, I think so. <laughs> Come to the info booth. We need some help. And I just, you know, obliged and, uh, and stuck with it. <laughs> you know, you were saying about just, just now about, about, uh, you know, people like welcoming you, um, yeah. at, at fringe. I do have to say that having gone to a bunch of fringes, that is one of the notable things. I mean, there's a lot of notable things about the Montreal Fringe, but it is one of the notable things about Montreal as a fringe festival that um, it is generally really welcoming that you can sort of walk in and people uh, are welcoming and uh, uh, wanting to talk to you and, and things like that in a way that I, don't, I think that I haven't found at other fringes that I've been at. Uh, I mean, thanks for saying that. That makes me happy. <laughs> but I think, you know, there might be a couple reasons why, you know, Montreal is, you know, people ask us, where do we stand on the scale of the Canadian fringes, right? And I say, well, it depends how you measure it. But if we just talk about size, we're sort of the smallest of the biggest. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're certainly still a festival that does quite a lot with very few resources. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it sort of makes it so that it really is a people power kind of fest. Yes. It's all about the people that come. You know, we have 300 volunteers annually who, and most, most of the people that you'll meet at our fringe selling tickets uh, at the beer tent, uh, et cetera, they're mainly volunteers. Our staff is quite small. Uh, so I think that's part of it. And, you know, we really stress with our staff and with our volunteers that it's a value-based festival. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is a value proposition we're offering. Um, that's all about diversity, accessibility, and artistic freedom. Uh, and that's, I think, where most of our artists, media, staff, patrons, volunteers really come from when they come to the fest. They start in that place of knowing that, yes, we're here for art. The art is really important. But we're also here because we believe in the values. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of allows for this more of a, a little bit more of a laid back experience, um, you know, a little less corporate, mm -hmm. uh, a little less. Uh, well, it's hard to talk about what we're not, but, <laughs> it, you know, I don't want to yeah, say, you know, 
<laughs> but but it does allow for that kind of different experience, I think. Mm. I think. And most of our staff are also used to be artists or volunteers themselves. Yeah. So there really is that kind of vibe going on. Like people who work here, people who come, like, you know, our, our fringers are pretty dedicated and hardcore about yeah. it all. Definitely. Um, and you, before you were the artistic director of both, um, well, you're artistic director of, of, of three things. You're a t- artistic director of, of uh, the Fringe Festival, the Mainline Theater, and uh, the the Bouge DC Dance Festival. So um, I think you were uh, artistic director of Fringe first. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so you took over from from I guess I guess Jeremy at a certain point. But I mean, you're you're you've, you're doing a lot. So you've gone from one to two to three. How do you juggle all of that? We just had a meeting with our staff about that today. <laughs> uh, and I asked them, how do you juggle it? And I got to tell you, no one had a quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really about, I mean, it's really about prioritizing and, you know, and knowing when to not be married to an idea. You know, a lot of things don't play out that we want. But, I mean, I think for me too, you know, the sort of my progression in my career has come in phases. So, uh, you know, with Bouge DC is actually a festival that I founded with a group of dance friends when we were at Concordia. And it sort of grew from there and was a bit of a side project that we only really brought into the mainline family after I started running the company. Mm-hmm. So that kind of worked out that way. And, you know, I mean, Jeremy was my mentor for many years. And, uh, you know, he he set me up well, I think, to be prepared to deal with the madness of the fest. Uh, he's a man with lots of really great advice. And yeah. uh, I think they really set me up well. And, I mean, we've got a great team. Yeah. And this, 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 the key lately, I think, especially for our organization, not just for me, is We've had the same people on staff for more than two years at a time. Mm -hmm. And that sort of through line makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I spend, I think I I do spend most of my time doing HR kind of work, trying to make sure that everybody else is set up so that they can do their work and so that they can move forward. Because when they're strong, that helps me be really strong in in what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um. So when you started as a volunteer, um, mm. how what was your journey to becoming the artistic director of the the Montreal Fringe? Well, I think the first part of that path was falling in love with the Fringe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and again, for me at the time, I fell in love with the idea that I was allowed to be involved and included. Mm-hmm. Right away, that sold me. Um, and then it became the party and right. the shows. And the, just the vibe, right? Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening is the following year, uh, my high school actually did a production at the Fringe uh, in uh, the venue nine, which is the May, which we still use as a venue. Uh, it was called So Cruel Teenage Wasteland. And uh, it, I think there must have been, we were a cast of about 12, a good dozen. And it was our high school drama teachers who put the show together. And we, you know, a bunch of fresh 18 year olds running around the fringe, uh, in Montreal, the legal age is 18. Uh, but you know, running around the fringe and discovering this beautiful thing. I mean, I think the fact that it would, 
we, we got to do it as a gang really helped. Um, and it was a really fun show. We won an award at the Frankie Awards and, and that was all over. And then I ended up coming back to volunteer in 2002, 2003, 2004. I kind of wasn't around as much. Like I had a breakup. <laughs> wasn't good. <laughs> so I wasn't around to volunteer that much. Um, but then I came back and I did my own show actually in 2006 uh, and uh, it was uh, I Love New York. We actually brought it to the Buxton Fringe that summer, which was crazy. Uh, you know, we didn't make any money, but it was a good experience. <laughs> um, and that year that we did I Love New York, the thing that was important for us was let's do our show, let's have a good time, but let's integrate into this community. And this is myself and the rest of the cast. And yeah. so we all – you know, we always tell artists that are coming to our festival that, you know, for your show to be successful, it's really great to integrate yourself, volunteer, hang out. And so we were volunteering like crazy. And I remember, I think that there was a night where I was venue managing for my own show because <laughs> <laughs> that I was in, <laughs> but it was because our, our venue manager last minute, she just, she was ill. She had to leave and the festival had nobody else to send. And so I sat there for a good half hour, putting on makeup and selling tickets all at the same time. <laughs> it's kind of nuts. And so, yeah, so then, uh, sort of tangentially, I was starting to get involved with mainline theater because mainline theater opened its doors in October of 2005. And there were volunteer opportunities there. And I actually begged Jeremy to hire me like over and over again. He wouldn't hire me. Um, I think cause there was no work, but anyways. Mm. Uh, and then, so time goes by. My big sort of breakout show was uh, Hardcore Pussy that I did uh, at the Fringe in 2007. And we got the cover of The Mirror uh, that year, which is sort of, you know, The Mirror was was one of the main alt-weeklies at the time. Right. Which no longer exists, as many of them no longer exist, yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately. But uh, and that, that was a big breakout year for, I think, not just me as an artist, but me in the community. And my, I'll be honest, I did have a goal going into that fringe. I said, I want to be on the cover of the mirror. I want that honor. Right. Uh, I want to represent the festival and I want to make sure that I get a job the next year. Mm. And I kind of, so I kind of already knew. And that was also the same year that I started my dance program at Concordia. And I remember, uh, actually a friend reminded me the other day that at the beginning of class, on the first day, our technique teacher had us all go around in a circle and say, you know, where do you want to be in uh, 10 years? Mm. And apparently I said, I want to be running the Montreal Fringe Festival. I don't remember that, but <laughs> apparently that was a thing. Mm. Anyways, um, so I got hired to be Jeremy's assistant after that in 2008. Um, 2009, he made me associate producer. Uh, 2010 was our 20th anniversary, and him and I co-produced that edition uh, and then, uh, and that was the year that our festival actually became 21 days instead of just the 10. Right. And then Jeremy kind of moved on and mm. ran the company and stuck around for a couple of years. And at the end of, uh, or yeah, the end of 2012, beginning of 2013, sort of passed the reins of the company on to me. And here I am still around, uh, doing what I hope I do best. I yeah. almost said doing what I do best, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, if you've been doing it this long, you must be doing, you must be doing something right. Um, I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. Yeah. I, it, it's, it's funny. I mean, one of my first 
uh, fringes away from where I'm from, the Toronto fringe, was actually mm-hmm. the Montreal fringe. It was my first away from home fringe. And it sort of set the tone for a lot of the fringes that, that my company went to because it was the one, since it was our first away, we took to heart the idea of the importance of integrating into the fringe community in the city that you're in. And it was an important lesson to take. And I think that we found a little bit more success in some of the cities we went to because we were willing to roll up our sleeves and get some stuff done. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a lesson that we took from Montreal. So I think it's an important one. Um, yeah. So in terms of, of when you're uh, putting a fringe together, obviously – uh, there are things that that you know the, to be a part of the the, the fringe circuit. You're, it's, there are certain you know principles that apply. Um, what goes into aside from like making sure that those principles are are maintained? Uh, what goes into uh, being the artistic director of a fringe festival? Yeah, well, I mean, you've definitely you know hit it on the what's the expression? I'm terrible with expressions these days. You hit it on the nail, hit the nail on the finger, hit it on the head. What is it? I think it's hit the nail on the head. You hit the nail yeah. on the head uh, <laughs> on that one. I mean, the principles, yes, most important. Um, when people ask me, you know, but you have the word artistic in your title, you're executive and artistic director. My, my response to that is that the art of non-curation is still an, is still an art. Mm-hmm. And it's the main part of my job is to be a spokesperson of the festival uh, to maintain the integrity of these principles as they're not always understood. And it's not the kind of thing that everyone automatically just understands, you know, on paper, it sounds like a really crazy idea of fringe festival uh, and the way that we do the programming. And, uh, and for those who haven't experienced it before, let's say a granting agency or a new sponsor or a new community uh, that we're trying to develop within uh, there's definitely a lot of work there with that. I know one of my first uh, big challenges I took on was trying to figure out how the francophone audience and media, uh, how they sort of saw us as a festival. Also the artists, how they used the fringe. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we did it. We did a big study about it with the McGill non-for-profit consultation community and discovered some really cool things about it that, don't apply to the Anglophones in Montreal, you know, such as a lot of our Francophone artists use it as an opportunity for workshopping hmm. for the most part, or a springboard because it's their first production out of school or uh, their first couple of productions out of school. And those tend to be the two main. There's obviously many other reasons, but those tend mm-hmm. to be those. And then for audiences, you know, Francophones don't understand what the word fringe means. Hmm. Because it doesn't really translate very well. Like I get invoices that say the Fridge Festival, <laughs> uh, the Frange Festival, like the French Festival, right. uh, you know, and it's, so it's kind of funny. But so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's sort of, you know, the, the main part of my work is really to be an advocate for what we do, you know. And I mean, there's lots of details within that. You know, I, I am the, the main person that writes all of our grants. Mm-hmm. We... Uh, we do have sponsorships at the Montreal Fringe. We try to not do too many because, you know, our audience isn't really into that. And, um, you know, so I, I try and seek out sponsorships and partnerships 
that fits sort of with our mandate and ethos, you know, that ethically makes sense for us to be pursuing. So I think there's a lot of examination of that that happens too. But then when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, it's like booking all the venues, Mm. creating the schedule. That is a mess. It takes months. I'll bet. Uh, It's crazy. It's, you know, we have 800 performances and I sit there with all of the company files and try to make some really hard decisions. Who's going to get that like 8 p.m. prime spot to open their show on the Friday night? And yeah. who's going to get? And who's going to get the midnight spot? <laughs> um, and how do we make the schedules kind of balance and all that yeah. kind of thing? So there's certainly a lot of work with that. And then there's marketing and the development. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Montreal, you were. I mean, talk just talking about the 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 francophone community. Montreal is pretty unique in the fact as far as the fringe festivals go in that you it's a bilingual fringe festival in that there's the the english programming and the french programming um you have the the fact that i think and correct me if i'm wrong but mm. i think that the montreal fringe is a little anglophone heavy because of the fact that the uh francophone community doesn't know what to make of fringe is that right uh, I, I would say that we're hoping that's evolving, but yes, you're right for yeah. sure. Um, so we actually made a strategic move a couple of years ago. It used to be so, cause most fringe festivals have quotas, mm-hmm. uh, to fill. So we have, it used to be that the local quota was split to be 30 French mm-hmm. companies, 30, uh, 30% English companies, and then 20% international and 20% Canadian. Mm-hmm. And we made a change for a couple of reasons. We wanted to be able to, uh, well, the, I'll say the change first, actually. We went to 35% local French, 35% local English, 15 international and 15 Canadian. We, we wanted to up the French side to receive more Francophone companies into mm-hmm. the festival. But then we also wanted to have slightly less, but not by a significant amount, uh, international and Canadian companies because we were finding that they were having a hard time integrating uh, or getting Francophones out to their shows. And we wanted to be able to give them more attention mm-hmm. uh, so that their capacities would go up and so that they could end up making more money in the end. But it's really, you know, the Montreal Fringe was actually, when it started, mainly just an English fest. Mm-hmm. The Fringe, you know, the Fringe movement is Scottish. Uh, most Fringe festivals take place um, in the English language. Yes, they do. And, uh, you know, so it was founded by two students of McGill University and the first five editions were at the McGill campus mm. and that's where the beer tent was and all the venues were um I unfortunately didn't get to go it was like 1991 to <laughs> 1996 but yeah, I was in elementary yeah. school but <laughs> but I think moving to the plateau is what's kind of opened it up a bit more and then you know really working at um at understanding their needs more yeah. and what we find now is Francophones go see English shows Mm. and vice versa. Anglophones go see French shows. And the joke that, you know, we have in the office these days is we almost need a bilingual quota right now in Montreal Mm. because so many shows are bilingual or we have a company this year, for example, Théâtre de la Pire Espèce. Uh, They have this show that they've only performed or they've performed mainly in French and they're quite an established company in this province. And they're about to bring their show to Edinburgh to do it in English for the first time. So they're going to test it out oh. to our English audience here first, which is like, that's so amazing, you know? 
That's really exciting. Yes. Yeah. Um, the 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 challenge with uh, uh, getting the French audiences out is mm-hmm. is that I mean you've made you sort of made like a conscious effort to try to get those audiences out. Um, how and that's working well? Do you think, or is this like just too recent to really be able to say? It's hard to say. Um, I can tell you that there's definitely signs that the work is starting to pay off. Uh, just looking at our volunteer pool uh, and walking around the festival last year. So we have walkie-talkies that all of our venue managers wear, mm-hmm. and they report to each other about tickets going on sale, etc. And traditionally, this was like an all-English, all-the-time kind of channel. Mm. And last year... There's so much French being spoken. It was amazing. It became this like Fringlish hybrid of a channel. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, definitely looking at our volunteer pool. Um, we have a lot, uh, a lot more francophones uh, participating on that end. And, you know, we're really excited to do our audience survey this year to see if it's, if it's worked, if it's changed. And, you know, I think that the signs, again, are there. Our French houses have increased significantly in recent years. And we had, like, Mado Lamotte, who is, like, if he, for anybody who comes to Montreal, Cabaret Mado is, like, the best drag queen bar to go to. Mm-hmm. And Mado is, like, Montreal's most famous drag queen. Uh, she is a French drag queen, but she likes to yell at all the Anglophones in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she was our spokesperson last year. Uh, and that's, I think, really helped us reach a new audience. And even this year, again, we have, an, we have a French company, Théâtre Cata, who swept most of the awards uh, in recent years as wow. a company. Um, awards that traditionally wouldn't go to a French to Francophone companies. So mm-hmm. there's definitely a shakeup and something happening. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to talk a little bit about about Mainline. Uh, sure. I think I spoke um, a, a while ago. I used to have a, another podcast that I did years ago, or maybe two years ago. Um, and I spoke. I had the opportunity to talk to Al France at the time, and I think that he was uh, general manager at at Mainline at the time. And mm-hmm. he was saying that what drew him to mainline as somebody who didn't initially wasn't really a theater person was the fringe vibe that he got that it was like mainline was continuing the fringe festival even after the fringe festival had ended um Mm -hmm. was that the intention of mainline from the beginning or did that sort of just happen organically or accidentally i think that the way Mainline has evolved in, in recent years has happened a little more organically. Uh, when it opened, uh, it was opened up to address the need of English indie companies. Mm. There were no spaces at the time for, uh, no structured spaces, let's say, for uh, English in- independent productions mm-hmm. to really take place in Montreal. Because, you know, you've got the big houses, right? Mm-hmm. You have the Siegel Center, and then you have Centaur Theater. And then there wasn't really anything else in between. Uh, so, you know, we definitely opened it up so that there'd be a place for artists to go on the way to these other places mm. uh, after the fringe. And, you know, Mainline did their own productions at the time, but we'd also see companies like uh, Sidemarch, 
uh, performed here in those early years when they were really starting to, to get their feet wet. Um, Tableau d'Hote Theatre, who is now a more uh, established company in Montreal now. And it's interesting because the fringe vibe kind of just came with that. Mm. Uh, you know, you put a bunch of fringe artists in a, in a wacky, weird kind of like punk rock style kind of space uh, in that vibe sort of continues. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing uh, a lot more dance here mm-hmm. for obvious reasons, I think. Right. Uh, but we're also seeing more French companies interested in the space, uh, wanting to put on work, that kind of thing. Uh, it's become, it's interesting. You know, we, Jeff, who is the current general manager, him and I were having a chat the other day about all the things, all the work we do. (laughs) And uh, we were talking just about the interesting idea of Mainline over the years sort of being a catalyst for things to play out, Mm. for change on the street, in the community. I mean, now we see places like Montreal Improv that has... uh, taken up shop down the street and they have two spaces and that's a thriving community. And these, this is a gang that they started as fringe artists. Uh, and they were teaching fringe, uh, improv workshops and, uh, you know, they were doing, bring your own venues at the fringe mm. and sharing a venue. And then it's like, okay, then they opened their venue. And then we see freestanding room that popped up just North of us. And now, you know, Jeremy who used to run mainlines opened up the wiggle room across the street. Mm. So, I think that there's certainly a role that that Mainline has sort of quietly played in that over mm-hmm. the years. It's not something that we sort of like yell about, um, but it's something that I think we're really proud of, you know, facilitating community over the years and that we just actually opened a brand new space <laughs> uh, down the street uh, called the Mainline Gallery then we're, I think we're hoping that, that that becomes another piece of the puzzle of, of show the, the kind of budding show district in the plateau right now. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know if we call it the uptown theater district or what, but uh, something like that. Well, it's interesting because I mean, I look at the way that different, different cities are sort of like dealing with their indie theater scene is mm-hmm. in Toronto. There is, there are, we're starting to see a lot of uh, uh, storefront theaters. It's um, amazing. So, and that's, I think that started uh, a few years ago with uh, the Red Sandcastle in one area. And then across town, there was another storefront theater. And there's, a, there's mm-hmm. a few more that have popped up. And it's really great to see independent, the independent scene sort of thriving in that way. And that there are spaces that are now affordable to independent artists. And I think it's also great to see um, Mainline and the effect of Mainline Theater in Montreal being sort of similar in that. Um, it sort of like be spawned all of these spaces for independent artists to to really find uh, a space for themselves to work. Well, I think it really starts with just the idea of doing it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and and that was a big thing that you know Jeremy and Jeff actually Jeff, who is now GM, opened Mainline with Jeremy mm-hmm. back in the day, and then he disappeared for a while. Who knows what he did? Um, <laughs> and then he. Uh, uh, I swooped him back into the main line. It was just super great. But, you know, I think that was a big part behind it. It was like, just go for it. Just do it. Show that it's possible. Um, and hopefully others will <laughs> believe you uh, yeah. and, and, and catch up. And, you know, I think especially in Montreal, uh, I think the people with the money 
aren't interested in opening small spaces because there's no money in it anyways. So you see a lot of collectives getting together and, and, and trying to figure out different models of how to do things. I mean, Montreal Improv's greatest success is that they really are a community. They have, uh, I don't know how many right now, but I feel like they have hundreds of students who take their classes, who populate their shows, uh, and who spread the word. And, you know, the freestanding room, for example, their venue is like membership driven. I think they have about a dozen members. They all pay a certain amount every month. They have access to rehearsal space and then they can also put on their shows. And there's a new venue that just opened up called Mademoiselle up uh, closer to the Myland kind of neighborhood. And uh, it's a burlesque dancer who wanted to start doing things herself. So she's opened uh, her own bar and it's just, mm. It's so great. And then we see like, oh my gosh, I'm just so excited about this these days. But there's a lot of places on St. Laurent Boulevard that are becoming multi-purpose, multi-use kind of spaces like Studio Bliss, who is a yoga studio, who's also trying to be a performance space, etc. It's It's certainly a good time as these places are becoming more affordable and as p- artists are becoming more confident, I think. It's very true. Now, one of the things that I, I think is a little bit unique to Montreal is mm-hmm. whenever I talk to Montreal artists, I hear more talk about the collective that they belong to that enables them to get a rehearsal space or a performance space or things like that. Whereas in other places, you find the theater company, people form a theater company, and then they're all struggling together to find the money to do their show and things like that. It, I've often thought that that the collective is something that's pretty unique to Montreal that the rest of that English Canada and other places should really just sort of uh, borrow a little more fra- from, because so, we could probably get a lot more done if we could find a way to work together in that way. Do you have a sense of what it is about Montreal that encourages the collective to work together in that way? Or is that, is that something that just is? <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing about it is that the English theatre community in Montreal first of all, is a small community. It, it, it grows, it's growing, but there is a history of having to work together to survive mm-hmm. because there is uh, a very large French theater community that historically, and I, I have to say, I think things have gotten a lot better, but historically we're getting most of the grants, most mm. of the space, a lot of the audience and et cetera. And the, the English theater community really struggled for years to figure out how to tap into that other community, how to build bridges between the communities, but also how to take space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that there certainly was an, a, a certain need to work together to get things done. Yeah. I, I've heard other, I've heard people who've been around a little longer than me talk about that mm. as being a, a real important factor um, in that. Mm. And 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 the fun thing is, is that that sort of approach has stuck around. And I do think that that's a big part of it. Mm. It's, it's not not in a way to protect the, ourselves, but again, in a way to survive mm. and in a way to move forward. And you know, you see in recent years. Places like Centaur Theatre doing or creating partnerships with uh, some of the smaller professional companies like Black Theatre Workshop or Geordie Productions or Imago. A lot of them have moved their shows to the Centaur mm. to sort of uh, work together 
pool resources and uh, try to make the best theater they can with what they have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so great to see and to hear that that's that's like really happening. Um, <laughs> the the Montreal Fringe it goes for twenty one days, as you were saying. Um, totally. What was the impetus for ex- expanding beyond the the ten days to the twenty one days? Well, so it started as a idea that we were only going to do once. And it was, we would have 20 days of Fringe to celebrate the 20th anniversary of the festival. Mm. And the interesting thing, we planned it out and then realized it was actually 21 days, but (laughs) that's okay. (laughs) Mistakes happen. Um, So it kind of became, you know, the first year we did it, it was a way to celebrate uh, the 20 years of the festival. Let's Mm. put a bunch of events together that our community really loves to go to. We already will kick it off at the fringe for all. We've always had the fringe for all be, uh, kind of the official kickoff of the fringe. And then we, we always kind of just had like a dead zone Mm. and then the festival would start. Um, and then we just, we decided to keep it. And, uh, it was my first year running the fringe by myself or sort of as the head was the year we decided to keep it. And, um, it's sort of as a way to celebrate what is happening in the fringe community. Cause I think because we're a value-based festival, again, there's a lot of communities that have the spirit of the fringe at their events all year. Mm-hmm. So for example, you know, we, we generally have the slow dance night, uh, which is a real all inclusive queer positive event that we have at mainline. And then, you know, this year, for example, we have roller derby, which is like, uh, I, in my opinion, the most punk rock out of all the sports ever. Uh, <laughs> and the most badass. Um, you know, we're working with them and, and a lot of other partners that are doing things that are fringy that don't necessarily fit within our mandate for our lottery shows, uh, but that certainly uh, contribute to uh, the flavor, again, of of our fest. And a lot of it is also competitions. Like we have the, an air guitar competition, uh, lipstick, which is like a lip sync competition. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to really motivate people, get them excited. And we try to really get our artists involved in these events because at the end of the day, to a certain extent, it is kind of a bit of an experiment in marketing for the mm-hmm. festival at the same time. Now that said, all those events do stop once the lottery shows open because those right. really are the focus of the fest and we don't want to take away yeah. you know, from them. But yeah. Yeah. Is there anything that you're looking forward to this year uh, at, at the Montreal Fringe? Oh my gosh. Anything and everything. <laughs> uh, we're, doing, we're doing some new things this year, which, which I'm excited about. Um, and also really uh, nervous about, if I can say, at the same time. Of course, yeah. There is, there is a trend in Canada right now where we are – some fringes have gone to 100% of tickets being available right away. Mm-hmm. So, And this is a new thing. Yeah. Uh, I think that maybe you can count the fringes who do it on one hand because uh, it used to be that a lot of festivals would save, what, like 25% of tickets to sell at the door? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, that was definitely the case for us. And so we've decided to jump on the bandwagon, the very scary teetery bandwagon, to uh, go to having 100% of tickets on sale. Uh, And we're already feeling the effects of it. 
people are already buying their tickets for the festival like yeah. earlier than ever. And we have shows that, uh, you know, I think are going to sell out before the festival even opens this year. Uh, and that's to me really exciting because I think sellouts breed sellouts. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm sad because it does mean that for, certain people they'll have they'll have moments where they can't get a ticket for a show and that really breaks my heart you know like the idea of like waiting to hear the buzz and then choosing what to go see they're i think going 100 percent means that you got to plan a little more you're no, fast. you do you do lose that you do lose the 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 spontaneity the what is the hot yeah. show trying to get tickets and you also lose uh the you know those walk-ups that often happen that used to happen yep. But it does mean that an artist can have the security of knowing that their show is doing well. They can sort of gauge, even before they, they come, how, how they're selling and what, what kind of work they'll have to do when they get there. Certainly. And that's, and that's a big part of it. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, like, when, when, I, when I tell people about the Fringe, for me, the Montreal Fringe is a festival for artists, mm-hmm. by artists. Most of our staff are artists ourselves. And yeah. you know, we want to make sure that they have a good experience and a good time. And I, I do think that this is going to make a huge difference. And, uh, and you know what? For those who uh, don't know what to see because their show is sold out, you know, we've got the hashtag Fringe Buzz that we've really yeah. been pumping up in recent years. Um, and uh, we find that that that's kind of replaced a bit of the word of mouth, right? Yes, of course. You know, moving on to Twitter, but really aggregating it through that hashtag Fringe Buzz has mm-hmm. really uh, worked out well for us uh, and our artists. And I have to say, I've started to notice other fringes using Fringe Buzz, and huh. it would be nice. It would be nice to see the tradition move across the country throughout the summer. It, you know, it really would. It would be good to see that sort of thing because I think that there is. There are different levels to uh, the use of social media across the country, uh, mm-hmm. and some use the use social media uh, more than others. Uh, mm-hmm. And Montreal, I think, has used it very successfully in the last few years. Thank you. Well, yeah. we're basically at the end of our time. I want to thank you so much for for talking with me today. This is great. Um, right on. This has been fun. Yeah, it has been fun, and I mean, you know, talking about all things fringe dance mainline. I mean, for me, that's a happy day. <laughs>